Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for tuning in this week. And on this week's show, we're going to take a deep dive into some of the reforms the Navy's been working on within its supply and logistics enterprise. We'll talk a fair amount during this week's show about the problem of shipyard maintenance availabilities taking a lot longer than they ought to. A lot of times that problem is discussed in the context of the modernization work the Navy's doing at the shipyards themselves to bring them up to more modern standards. That's obviously something that needs to happen, but it turns out another big part of the problem is that the skilled tradesmen who need to do the work at those shipyards quite often don't have the parts and supplies they need to do the maintenance once a ship arrives in the yard. And so to some degree, the delays are just about waiting for that stuff to arrive. And it's it's stuff that the Navy ought to know it'll need way ahead of time. Finding and fixing that particular problem is just one example of some of the ways the Navy is trying to do better in its sustainment mission via something called Naval Sustainment System Supply. Listeners might remember we've talked about this before with the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos. He joined us last fall to lay out some of the ideas, and even at that point, the business reforms that they were working on had already generated $400 million in savings. That number has grown since then, and Admiral Stamatopoulos is back with us now to talk about some of what's happened more recently. Admiral, thanks for taking the time to talk to us again, and I think we want to spend most of our time today talking about some of the most recent developments with NSS Supply. But for folks who have not been tracking the the broader Navy's NSS initiatives and NSS supply in particular, could you just give us a little bit on what ties this all together, all of these discrete pillars and initiatives, what what the Navy and what NAVSUP is really after uh, in the big picture here over the next several years? Yeah, sure. In in the big picture, it's really two large-scale strategic initiatives. I would characterize them as that. And that is our performance to plan program and our NSS Naval Sustainment System program. And if you if you think about those those two big, if you will, I'm going to call them approaches, the performance to plan approach really looks at really tough problems across the Navy and evaluates those tough problems, which oftentimes, as you can imagine, Jared, spans multiple commands, multiple echelons and mission partners across the Navy and outside of the Navy. So the performance to plan is really what we call our get real engine. And we dissect our processes. We create driver trees. We evaluate data within those processes to be able to hunt for the most high leverage activities within those end-to-end processes that lead to better performance. So number one, the performance to plan engine is our get real engine. For instance, with our NSS shipyard program and P2P shipyards, we are able to now measure the length of the availabilities and dissect what are some of those key leverage points across our shipyard or our public shipyards uh, that we can gather data on, measure performance there, and then hunt for the highest leverage in order to attack that leverage to get better. The get better engine is the NSS engine, Naval Sustainment System. When, and I'm, of course, the, uh, co- the, the supported commander 
for NSS supply we'll talk about, but that overarching NSS system really incorporates, you know, again, leveraging what we know we learn in P2P, we then bring that under the NSS construct, if you will, and we actually then act with commercial best practices to be able to make step change improvements in our processes. And so it's really exciting work where, you know, we take commercial best in class data, best in class examples that are out there. We bring them into the military context. We use those side by side with commercial best in class with our legacy processes, and we look for areas where we can actually learn from commercial best in class performance, change our processes in order to leverage higher performance. That's the big picture of P2P and NSS. And I think another really key part of this on the get better side is it's not NAVSUP or NAVC or NAVAIR acting alone. There's a new governance process here, right? So you can elevate these issues to senior leadership to make decisions so that it's not each of these commands acting alone. That's right. And, and a, a key tenet of both of those programs is clear, supported and supporting relationships among key leaders. Again, single, accountable, responsible leaders who are accountable and responsible for the performance of the overarching program, if you will. In my case, I'm the supported commander for both P2P logistics and NSS supply. And I have many, many, of course, supporting commanders who assist me uh, with being able to accomplish my overall mission to make our end-to-end -end supply chains act more coordinated and uh, to be able to deliver the, uh, the enhanced uh, performance that we need and demand. And since you brought up shipyards already, let's start there because I think that's where a lot of the action in wave three of NSS supply has really been. Can, can you describe that supporting, supported uh, commander relationship there as, as, as regards to you and NAVC and, and more broadly what you've been working on in order to improve those availabilities? Sure. So as I mentioned, I'm the, I'm the supported commander for NSS supply. And again, that's the Navy's end-to-end -end supply chains. And as you can imagine, Jared, our supply chains cross not only submarines and aircraft carriers and surface ships, but also nuclear power plants, also aviation, all platforms within aviation, including our expeditionary forces. So end-to-end -end supply chain is quite broad, but there's a lot that's common across those very diverse supply chains that support each of those very important areas. So as the commander of NSS supply, I have about, it's about 11 supporting commanders, uh, six of which are three-star uh, flag officers. Now, Admiral Galinas is the supported commander for the NSS shipyards. So I am supporting to Commander Galinas. How do I support him? I'm supporting him with assuring that his material support and the end-to-end -end supply chain, which supports those availabilities, in our four public shipyards are actually performing as high as they possibly can to be able to eliminate, if you will, any delays in the availability of our submarines or our aircraft carriers getting out of their shipyards on time due to material issues. Maybe you can give us some, some concrete examples of the ways in which not having those supplies lined up as efficiently as they could be 
has contributed to some of those delays in the past and what you've done to resolve some of that? Sure. So looking at the P2P shipyard program, again, Admiral Galinas and his collective team of supporting commanders got together and really dissected you know, some of the major muscle movement things that need to happen within a shipyard availability to get a submarine or aircraft carrier out on time. What we found by dissecting the data was about 30% of the delays in availabilities were caused by a lack of material being delivered on time to the artisans when they were ready to start a job. Okay, so that's a concrete example of how the Entan supply chain and my supporting efforts, Admiral Galinas, uh, is getting after trying to eliminate any material delays and shortfalls so that when his artisans get on board a submarine or an aircraft carrier to start work, they have everything that they need. Now, we found out also through a lot of analysis that there's many root causes for that. And so part of this work is really getting real with ourselves, dissecting, as I mentioned, our processes, understanding that only 37%, now I'm up to 37, 30% of material was identified prior to the start of an availability. That's a very small amount of material needed for that availability. So what happens to the balance of that? almost 60 percent, 60 plus percent uh, of the material requirements. Well, they are discovered as that availability is moving along. And there's, you know, some of that material is just never identified up front in the planning process. Some of it occurs when they open and inspect a planned job where there's growth work inside that particular maintenance uh, action that they are performing. And what we found out is, is that oftentimes in that growth work, we should have the parts on hand ready to go before the work is actually started. And it's just part of the dysfunction that has developed over the course of time that we haven't been able to be as predictive in our requirements determination to support those jobs. So we're getting after that. There's also quite a bit of new work that emerges once an availability gets underway and started. Another thing is, is that of the material that's identified, a very small amount is identified before the start of availability, not all of that delivers on time. Sometimes this material, when it's identified, you know, six months into an availability, that material is put on order. There's nothing that's on the shelf in the defense supply system or in the Navy supply system. You have to go out and make a procurement for that. And then you find yourself being a lead time away from that material actually coming in. So there's lots of things that we're getting after in support of NSS Shipyard, that's one of them. You know, another thing is, is when we've looked at this even closer, Jared, we have found out that our, what's called the Code 500 within the shipyard, that's essentially the supply department. The supply departments within the shipyards were just not functioning uh, as well as they could over the course of the past 15, 16 years. And so we've gone in and we've analyzed that, and we've seen that there are multiple supporting activities that are contributing to the material management within a shipyard. So in other words, the command and control is not clean and clear and crisp. We saw that our code 500s, the supply departments, were not 
getting all of the requirements in from across the shipyards. So requirements were finding their way around the supply system, if you will, and not going through a central point. Well, when we don't go through a central point, we don't have visibility of those demands. So over time, we can be more predictive with the material that we should have on hand in the shipyard ready to go or on hand in our wholesale supply system, either in the Naval Supply Systems Command or in the Defense Logistics Agency. Rear Admiral Peter Stamatopoulos is commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. We'll come back and talk more about what the Navy's doing to improve material availability in its shipyards after a quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, it's on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Talking this week with Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, about some of the reforms the Navy's undertaking as part of a project called Naval Sustainment System Supply. One of the most salient issues the project's identified is that only about 30% of the material needed to finish a ship's maintenance availability is actually there at the yard when the work is supposed to start. And Admiral, it sounds like going going back to some of your earlier comments on on material availability, probably never going to get to a hundred percent, right? Because there's always going to be some amount of stuff that you're only going to identify after you do those open and inspects that you talk about. But it sounds like a lot of this you really can predict with a high degree of of reliability that you're you're going to need some of this stuff and you can plan better. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, one of the things that we do in, in the NSS program overall is we work really hard to be comfortable being uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to put a goal out there that we are going to identify 100% of the material prior to the start of an availability. That is, to you know, to your point, that's a very tall order. But we give ourselves these stretch goals, these really tough bars to be able to go after, and we encourage our workforce to embrace that. Normally, our legacy performance has been poor, only as I mentioned, about 33 to 37% of the material identified before the start of availability. Now, to get that from 37 up to 100% requires a lot more integration and synchronization amongst the engineering divisions within the shipyards, the actual operations divisions, the work centers themselves, the artisans, and others across the NAVC support structure in order to be able to identify material upfront, get those demand signals into supply so that we can start to act on them, get them on order, and you know follow through so that we can actually uh, get them delivered to the artisans at the right time in the availability. And how does all this impact your relationships with industry? Because I assume part of this is once you're doing a better job of gathering that data and forecasting it, you're obviously going to want to communicate that to your key vendors too. So maybe talk a bit about the industry piece of this too. Yes, absolutely. And and industry is a huge partner uh, in, in all of our NSS supply work that we're doing. There's no doubt. In fact, one of our key pillars is called Shape the Industrial Base, where we have actually for the past two years have extraordinarily close relationships with the C-suites, the senior level leaders across our vendor base. Um, And so they are well aware of these efforts that we are doing. One of the things that I continuously hear from them is they 
um, would like to have a, a more stable uh, demand forecast provided to them. And, and that's something that we're going to work really hard to be able to give them that. Uh, give them that. The other thing that we we can do to help out is within our shipyards, our public shipyards, they have been the designated overhaul point for many of our depot level repairable components. These are large components which are on our submarines and our aircraft carriers. And because the shipyards and the shipyard workers really need to be spending the majority of their time on board the submarines and aircraft carriers, fixing material, those repairs of those components have suffered. The repair turnaround times have actually been far too long, way outside of commercial best practices. In fact, some of this material have turnaround times of over 600 days. That's something that we have to turn around. We have to get better there. So one of the things that we're doing is concentrating inside the shipyards to make sure that those specific shops that are responsible for the overhaul of those uh, of those components have all of the bit piece part support that they need to effectuate a rapid repair. It also requires us to work very closely with the engineering divisions and the warfare centers who have the technical authority for much of that material because engineering changes may be required as those uh, shops commence work on a component. The other thing that we're doing is we're trying to build the defense industrial base to get them better postured to support the repair of these depot level repairables uh, that are so important to our submarines and aircraft carriers. We're currently the only designated overhaul point is a shipyard. We'd like to have commercial vendors qualified to be able to give them some of that repair work component repair work so we can free up artisans within the shipyards to actually get on board the submarines and the aircraft carriers and continue their important works and jobs that they have there. Yeah, and is building that industrial base primarily just making more use of existing commercial companies and facilities, or is it really no kidding from the ground up fostering the development of new companies? Well, it's a it's a little bit of both. So we we know that when we when we talk submarines and we talk Virginia class submarines, we know that we have experienced quite a bit of material obsolescence over the course of the years that those submarines have uh, have been built. So in many cases, the vendors who supported uh, the first block of the Virginia class have moved on to other blocks, and they have uh, left behind, if you will. Uh, some of that uh, material support work uh, for, for the older blocks. Hence, we have some material obsolescence that's out there. In those cases, we're trying to build back the industrial base to be able to support us there. The other thing that we're doing is we look forward. As we look forward, as new submarines are coming online, aircraft carriers, and this also goes for aviation platforms, we need to make sure that we have the right mix of not only organic repair, but also of commercial repair, because we have to preserve and protect both that organic and that commercial repair capability. The best way that we can do that for the commercial base is to give them a solid, stable demand. We have to be sensitive to their needs for cash and some of the other barriers that they may be experienced within their workforce, such as COVID did have a impact on several companies uh, that provide repair support to our components 
and we need to be sensitive to those needs and work with them also to help them in some cases modernize some of their equipment uh, that they use uh, to be able to effectuate these repairs. So there's a it's a collaborative environment that we are working very hard to foster with industry. Yeah, I want to spend just another second, if we can, on that and providing that stable demand forecast, which especially for smaller companies has importance for obvious reasons. Is there a tension there between being able to tell your vendors this is the cadence upon which we're going to need this particular part or supply and the fact that you just don't know what you don't know until you get under the hood during a maintenance availability? In other words, does that does providing that stable forecast just require you to accept that you might be carrying more stock or more supply in warehouses than you might otherwise want to? Okay, well, let's, you know, now now really what you're starting to do is get into the real engine and the purpose behind the NSS supply program writ large. So again, uh, as we've discussed in the past before, we have, you know, really six pillars uh, that, that that we are organized around, demand management, forecasting, correctly, but it's also being able to insert reliability into some of these components so we can get more utilization out of those components before we have to, if you will, scrap them and purchase that next part. Uh, Optimize working capital portfolio, shaping the industrial base, expanding our organic repair capability and optimizing our commercial repair capability, increasing our uh, end-to-end velocity. These are the pillars that we are organized around. And so when you get back to the companies here, first off, we have to look at ourselves. And and one, when, when I started the program two years ago, I, I realized right up front that our working capital fund was in need of reform. It was in need of reform. It was in need of governments. It was in need of better understanding. And so we made the working capital fund portfolio a priority of ours in order to stabilize our cash losses that we were encountering, to be able to do better, more effective buying, to be able to see across the end-to-end supply chain, to integrate our contracting and acquisition together with our cash management and what we call our sales and operations plans that we have. All of that had to be better integrated and synchronized and coordinated. We have come a long way in the past two years, and we're, we're we're now at a much, much better place. What that factors into is now when we go out to industry, we can, with a higher degree of confidence, give them a far clear demand picture. We can craft our contracts collaboratively with industry that helps us achieve what we are trying to achieve, which is quick commercial best-in-class turnaround times for the repair of our components, stable delivery schedules. On the other hand, we want to make sure that we have ample cash balances to be able to uh, to pay our vendors, which we pay on time. We pay actually early, but that's an important thing for our vendors as well, is to make sure that they have the cash flow coming in so that they can sustain those production uh, and repair facilities and keep those those workforces stable in working on what we need them working on. This also allows us to better workload adjust across the end-to-end supply chain uh, when you have a, a, a more harmonized uh, working capital fund that's focused in on its cash performance. Prior to NSS supply, we really had lost touch 
of our cash management. Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos is commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. We'll come back and talk more about what the Navy's doing to improve material availability in its shipyards after a quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And we're talking this week with Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, Commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, about some of what NAVSUP's doing as part of a five-year business improvement effort called NSS Supply. Before the break, we talked a bit about what it all means to industry and how the Navy can send more consistent demand signals to its vendors. And Admiral, I guess one of the things I'm still trying to get my head around a little bit is maybe you can give me a, a specific example of how that forecasting process actually can get better so that you can give a vendor certainty as to how how much and how often you're going to have a requirement for a particular thing. How, how ultimately are you getting after solving that knowledge problem? So, yeah, so there's, there's a variety of, uh, if we call them al- allowancing models that are out there. In the Navy, we use what's called readiness-based sparing models, which are really high-performing predictive models uh, that we have made in collaboration uh, with educational institutions and commercial providers out there over the course of time. And and we do get pretty solid performance from those readiness-based sparing models. We also have a variety of demand-based models that can help us understand our demand and be predictive on that. But let's go to the shipyard for a quick moment. And in the shipyard, remember, I said we weren't even able to identify 35, 37% of the requirements were were only being identified before the start of availability. Yet, when we looked historically over many past availabilities, we can now aggregate all those requirements, which, oh, by the way, they were not being captured uniformly by our supply department by the Navy's Code 500 supply departments. They were not being captured uniformly. There were some material requirements which were NSNs that had uh, provisioned and they had stock numbers either held by uh, DLA or the Navy, but there was a huge uh, number of part-numbered requisitions. And on further examination of those part-numbered requisitions, we were finding out that many of the shipyards, four of the shipyards oftentimes were competing with one another with the same commercial vendor to be able to purchase part numbered material to affect their availabilities. That type of integration was not being done until we started this NSS supply effort with Admiral Galenis. And so now we're able to look at that vast amount of part number demand. We're able to go, my goodness, those should be stock numbered and provisioned items. Let's do that. Let's then get either DLA or the Navy to be able to purchase those using our working capital funds to make sure we buy that material in advance of need. And all of that means that we can eventually stabilize the demand because we're looking across all four shipyards and multiple submarine availabilities and aircraft carrier availabilities to be able to aggregate demands, do some category management on certain uh, types of uh, repair parts, both consumables and depot lever repairables in order to be able to make sure we have, again, a stable demand forecast going out to the uh, industrial base, but we also keep in stock at the shipyards or in our wholesale systems enough stock so that our artisans, whenever they order something 
for an availability, they have it available and it's ready to go before they start the job. Hope that makes sense. It does, and it's really helpful. I guess I, I did not understand how much purchasing was happening at the local shipyard level. And so, yes, there's obvious reasons why it would make sense to do that at more of an enterprise level. I assume that also gets you better pricing terms from a big Navy perspective? Sure, it can. And really, when you when you talk about that, the Navy, if you look at the Navy, we actually have an enormous amount of buying power. And typically, our legacy approaches in the past have been the acquisition community, our program executive officers and program offices, use investment dollars and they purchase the end items or the ships or the aircraft. And that's done usually separate and apart from sustainment contracting, which is then focused in on making sure we have the right wholesale level of repair parts to be able to support the fleet. So what we are doing in NSS Supply is we're actually running pilots that take both the acquisition contracting workforce in, for instance, NAVAIR and my acquisition workforce at NAVSUP WSS, we're bringing both of those uh, disciplines into the room. We're creating RFPs, requests for proposals with industry, and we're actually not only doing the new procurement of parts, but also the sustainment together. And that's a, that's a first time that that's happened in at least 20 years. And what that allows us to do is bring the full buying power of both the acquisition community, in other words, the program offices, and the sustainment, NAVSUP, into the same room. And by the way, we're negotiating upfront sustainment before we talk about how many numbers of airplanes or, or components that we're going to be purchasing. It's a whole different approach to how we do contracting and acquisition, and it's exciting. No, I was just going to say that seems pretty revolutionary because, as you just alluded to, if you do all that contracting all at once, you, you do actually kind of know what the real life cycle cost is going to be, right? Well, you certainly can, and what's what's uh, it, it can it can result in, in 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 better affordability. But what we really like, because we are effectiveness focused, right? We're readiness focused. What it allows us to do is to be able to better manage, okay, the workflow with our commercial partners. So imagine if we know that they have a new production line of uh, components uh, for a new modernized weapon system that's coming off of the line, and they're also producing the spare parts for that, and they're also repairing some of the carcasses or the not ready for issued uh, returns that come from the fleet. So as the fleet use a component, the component eventually uh, has some sort of fault in it. We have to return it back to the to the uh, the prime vendor so that they can make the repairs. We can now manage that workflow between new production and repair, whereas prior that was done separate and apart from one another, and it created a dilemma for the commercial vendor: who do they prioritize, repairs or spares? Which one or new production? And so now by coming in with Vice Admiral Morley, you know, the ASN RDNA team, we're able to sit down and have these conversations, set the conditions for success with the C-suite of our, of our prime, uh, you know, vendors that are out there and commercial partners. They understand what they're trying to do. They embrace it. And now we're just now working ourselves through a series of pilots in order to learn and ultimately scale this out to really benefit, not only in terms of affordability, but also performance. Because as you know, uh, you know, to keep the fleet sustained, 
they need their spare parts, whether they're new or they're refurbished and repaired. We need to keep that pipeline of material running across planet Earth here to support our ship submarines and our aircraft. Talking with Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. He's back with us to talk more after another break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're talking with Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command. And, and as we start to run low on time here, Admiral, I want to come back at least briefly to the cash management issue that, that you raised. Can you describe a little bit more what that disconnect was that you described between the working capital fund sure. and acquisition practices and, and what you've done to tighten those up? Sure. So the services run what are called working capital funds, and I'll just focus in on the Navy working capital fund sure. supply management. And that's really where we, we buy. It's, it's about a $38 billion inventory of components, hundreds of thousands of components inside there for aviation, submarines, and ships, and our, and our nuclear, of course, uh, power plants on those. So it's, it's quite a large inventory there. Two years ago, when I when I took over, you know, I immediately noticed we've we've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen. In other words, if you think about it, the investment accounts from our resource sponsors, uh, you know, the N98, the N97, the N96, who actually make resource allocation decisions to buy new weapon systems or spare parts, that's a source of revenue that comes in to the working capital fund, as an example. We also have quite a lot of revenue that comes in from the fleet in this terms of their flying hour program and the steaming hour program. So there are a lot of inputs into the working capital fund and each of those leaders that are that that are responsible for those areas have levers and they are either pulling on the levers to increase the amount of sales and demand that they put on the working capital fund or they're holding the levers back. That creates an uneven flow of funds sometimes for a variety of reasons, okay? But when all in all, you total it all up, there were probably over 15 different leaders that had levers that they were pulling independently. That had to stop. And so Admiral Gumbleton and I put in place a governance structure over our Navy Working Capital SM account in order to be able to better synchronize and orchestrate and integrate all of those entities that that had a stakehold in the working capital fund. That was number one. Number two was I wanted to see ourselves from a cash view, which frankly, we did not have a very solid, transparent cash view of our operation. Why? Because our transactional business systems were never designed to do that. And as you know, Jared, not only do we operate here at NAVSUP with Navy ERP, but we also operate with other mission partners with different logistics IT and business IT systems that are out there. So we weren't able to get a full comprehensive picture from a cash view. So we, we solved that and we looked at a cash view. And when we saw ourselves from a cash lens, we noticed 
different behaviors that we started to illuminate as a result of that. In fact, what we found out was we need to adjust our pricing models as well as our expenditure models because those models, although they served us well in years past, were not harmonized or synchronized as effectively as they could be. And so through doing that, we started what we called a cash war room. Because as you can imagine, with a $38 billion inventory with sales that exceed $7 billion per year, we're buying a lot of material. And sometimes the demand patterns change in the fleet. And so we weren't agile enough to be able to adjust our contracts to be able to, if you will, throttle material either coming in for delivery or accelerate material off of the production line to get to us because we didn't have a good view of cash. And as you may know, Jared, many of the services, including the Defense Logistics Agency, their working capital funds have been under some cash stress over the past couple of years. Well, we got a handle of that. So now because we can see ourselves better, we can manage the cash to cash cycle of our sales and expenditures. And it's made all the difference. So think about this. In the aviation community, they have a lot of repetitive sales. And so we can we can count on a lot of material coming through the working capital fund, going into a repair facility, whether it's organic or commercial, or uh, we'll have a depot level washout. We may have to buy new material. On the surface side and the submarine side, the cash to cash cycles of material coming through the system are far slower. So we can find ourselves in situation where we may have procured too much material thinking that we were going to use it, but demand patterns changed and now we have to kind of throttle back. Otherwise, we're going to expend too much cash and get into an, a cash extremist situation. Well, through this cash lens look and better coordination with the fleets, and with the organic and commercial repair facilities, we're able to see ourselves better and synchronize and harmonize those financial transactions for higher performance and more affordability. Really interesting. Um, a lot of what you talked about there with, with the absence of a cash view, to me, kind of sounds like it has echoes of what the broader DOD financial management community has been going through forever as they try to get the department in shape for an audit. Just the proliferation of systems that were never designed to use commercial best practices, were never designed to pass a financial statement audit. It sounds like you've done some things that, again, are analogous to what the broader financial management community is going to need to do to implement some of these practices. And I'm just curious how big a lift it was in terms of whatever you needed to do to re-architect your IT systems, your business practices, to get you to a point where you could have that cash view that you talked about. Okay, well, first of all, let me let me say this. The Navy and the many, many services are going through uh, logistics, IT, and business IT modernization efforts. Okay, and as you know, those don't happen overnight. Uh, we're trying to go as fast as we can, and we want to go faster. I don't let the IT hold me up. Okay, so separate and apart from NSS supply, however it is closely related, Jared, is two years ago I established what I call Task Force 66.5, which is a task force specifically developed to be able to go after and attack our auditability issues within the Navy Working Capital Fund. So think about this. 
$38 billion worth of inventory. I've got over 1,000 locations across planet Earth where that material is sub-custodied to different entities. Now, NAVSUP has 31 warehouses, 31 locations, and we hold about $5 billion of that uh, $38 billion inventory. DLA holds a large amount of money for the Navy, but so do the other systems command, NAVAIR, NAVC, NAVWAR. They all have in their custody my Navy Working Capital Fund material, and the other services have custody of my material, and an even bigger population, the largest, is the commercial defense industrial base. I've got 900 vendors that have material subcustody to them as they repair that material. So that's the audit environment landscape, which I am tackling with Task Force 66.5. And what that's required is to really dissect, like never has been done before, our business processes. And we have worked extraordinarily hard put it together a what's in what in essence was a military campaign plan with lines of effort to be able to dissect each one of the business processes inside our navy warehouses and our navy repair facilities and it's really exciting work because like never before are from the deck plate all the way up to the commanding officers who have custody of that material they are learning inside and out their business processes, which frankly, they really didn't know before. They kind of entrusted that down to the deck plate lowest level possible. And as you know, and what I say is audit is commander's business, NSS supply, P2P, it's all commander's business. And we have a responsibility to understand our processes like never before. And it's actually, we're getting results from it. We're down to just our last couple minutes here, and I can't let you get away without talking about actual accomplishments here. Realize I've buried the lead a little bit here, but but um, where are we with NSS supply overall? Last time we talked to you, I think we you had you had achieved 418 million in savings and cost avoidances, a little bit ahead of plan at that point. Where are you? At yeah, this point? No, no, that's great. So it, it, it's great. We're actually above 600 million and and pressing higher. So again, when you I'm not sure if I mentioned to you last time, you know, anybody can say, oh, my goodness, we've got $600 million in cost avoidance or uh, benefit. Well, I will tell you this. Our vice chief of naval operations, Admiral Usher, is is not pushing the I believe button. So any of the benefits that we are seeing in NSS supply, uh, whether it's cost avoidance, it's actual um, uh, capture of value, that's being documented by comptrollers, uh, not only my comptrollers, but by the Navy Secretariat staff comptrollers to validate that we've actually delivered on, on these promises. And that's what's been really uh, exciting as well. So we're up north of 600 million right now, and, and there's way more that's gonna come, I predict. Remember, NSS Supply is a five-year program. We're just finishing up about a year and a half. We've almost done with wave three, and we're gonna be kicking off wave four. So. Wave one and two, we're setting conditions really within some of our, our, our most concerning areas, increasing repair turnaround times with our commercial vendors to get them more in line with commercial best practices, you know, dissecting 
and uh, further uh, aligning and harmonizing our working capital fund, getting after demand management, reliability control, all the way down to the deck plate in our squadrons. All that work is advancing forward and it's being applied in the surface Navy. And of course, now my concentration during this past wave three has really been the maritime space. And I'm telling you, it is a space with great opportunity, great opportunity for all of us to get better, to get real and get better, uh, but to deliver real value to the, to the surface and the submarine and the aircraft carrier forces that are out there. We just cannot afford to have our submarine and aircraft carrier availabilities go beyond their allotted time frame. Every day a submarine is delayed in getting out of their, of their availability. It's close to $800,000 in delay costs. So think about that. That's a lot. And every day that I can make sure that we have the material on hand, ready for an artisan to go, you know, is just one less day that there will be a delay. And that's why our, our stretch goal is 100% material identified before the start of the availability. That gives us a fighting chance to be able to get that material on order, bring some more end-to-end uh, -end supply chain discipline into the shipyards, which has lacked, and change and bend the curve. Rear Admiral Pete Stamatopoulos, the commander of Naval Supply Systems Command, he was good enough to spend the full hour with us this week talking about performed plan and naval sustainment system supply. If you missed any of it, the whole discussion, as always, will be available at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. And you can subscribe to the podcast version of this show, which is sometimes a little longer than the radio version, wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for on DOD and Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbia. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.